0: All right. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to our very first My Angular story. Um, I have recorded about three of these for JavaScript Jabber, and this is the first one I'm doing for Adventures in Angular. So I'm going to kind of talk you through the format as we go, just so that you, the listener, can get used to this. Um, our first Angular story is from Taro Parviainen. I hope I said that kind of correct.
1: That was pretty much perfect, yeah.
0: Uh, do you want to give everybody just a brief introduction before we get rolling?
1: Sure. Yeah. So I'm a front-end developer from, from Helsinki, Finland, doing a lot of Angular in the last last three or four years. And uh, and uh, I'm mostly working as an independent contractor with, with uh, many different companies around the world. But I also do a lot of writing and speaking around the things that I do. But uh, mainly I'm working front-end developer.
0: Yeah, and we've met in person a few times at the various Angular conferences. I think you were at NGNL. Yeah, and NGNL. yeah, we met there.
1: Yeah. yeah, so yeah, I try to catch as many as I can, and there are a lot of great Angular conferences these days, which is great.
0: Yep, you've also been on Adventures in Angular twice. So if people are mm-hmm. looking for those episodes, you were on episode fifty-one talking about the Angular one compiler, and you were on mm-hmm. episode one seventeen talking about hot loading and time travel, which was kind of a yes. cool deal with Webpack and NgRx and all that awesome stuff.
1: Yeah, that's a lot of fun.
0: Yep. So I sent you the questions, and I'm just going to start with the first one, and we'll just kind of move through these. Um, I tend to ask the question, and then if there's something that I want to pull on or push on, then I'll ask other questions um, as we go. So uh, the first question that I ask is, how did you get into programming?
1: Yeah, okay. So my very first intro to programming was was when I was a about seven or eight, when we uh, got a Commodore 64 computer, to, to or my mom and dad bought one for me and my brother, which um, we mostly used for playing games and doing things like that. But it also had a basic interpreter on that machine. So an interpreter for the basic programming language, which I played with a little bit. So we had this programming, books, written in Finnish, that had code listings for things like basic text adventure games and things like that. And I used to sort of painstakingly copy that code to the basic interpreter from those books and and spend a lot of time on that. I don't really call that programming because I had no idea what the code was about. I just copied it and when it didn't work, I had no idea what to do with it. But but, uh, I think it made some neural connections uh, even back then that turned out to be useful later. But that was pretty much the extent of it until my adulthood, when, when uh, I actually really got into programming, which was when it, when I was in my early 20s. And that's when I got my first internship uh, doing software development. And uh, so this was in 2001. It was at the middle of the big IT bubble that, that was going on back then in the mid uh, or the uh, turn of the century. And I was lucky to be looking for internships back then because they were hiring everyone uh, at, at that point that didn't even have to kind of know how to code to be uh, hired as a coding, in a coding internship. So I got my first job as a Java programmer back then. And I've been doing that ever since. Well, not coding Java, but uh, doing, working as a working programmer since 2001.
0: Wow, that's pretty amazing. And it's it's funny that... I mean, you hear these stories, right, of people that were like, oh, yeah, I mean, I, I remember I started programming when I was two and, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, or seven or eight, right? But, yeah, you know, you kind of got exposed to it and then you came back to it as an adult. And I, I think right. a lot of people get this in their head that there are people who are made for programming and then people who are not mm-hmm. made for programming. And I find that to be just patently false. And, you know, you were exposed yeah. to it. It was kind of a fun thing for a little while. And then you came back to it as an adult and it was like, oh, okay. I actually like this enough to want to do it full time.
1: Yeah, definitely. I don't, I don't. I agree that there's no, no sort of natural kind of uh, skill or whatever you want to call it that anyone has. It's just something that your environment exposes you to it and, and you kind of start doing it or you don't. But, but anyone can do it. No, there's nothing magical about it.
0: Hey there, this is Charles Maxwood and I just wanted to talk to you really briefly about Freelance Remote Comp. I'm putting on a conference for people who want to go freelance or who are freelance and bringing in some of the experts from the Freelancer Show to talk to you about how to find clients, how to collect money, how to build your business, how to specialize and much, much more. So if you're thinking about going freelance or you're already freelance and want to hear from the experts on how to go, become, or grow your freelancing business, then by all means, come check us out at FreelanceRemoteConf.com. So how did you wind up going from Java to Angular? The next question is, how did you get into Angular? But,
1: mm. so, so from the very beginning when I started working, I've been essentially doing web applications or different things that people use with web UIs, and even with Java, that was always web apps done with uh, Java frameworks of the time. And then, when Rails came around, I got onto that bandwagon pretty early on. I was doing a lot of Ruby for, for many years, and then a bit of closure when that came out. And so with those, it kind of started to veer more towards the front end, of course, when the Ajax things came came, came about and all those things. But Angular was then actually kind of late. It was, I think, around two thousand and thirteen when it was already really big and being used a lot. Uh, until then, I'd I'd done some front end stuff with Backbone and, and a little bit with uh, um, what was the uh, precursor Ember. to Ember called uh, uh, Sproutcore. <laughs> Sproutcore, yeah, a little bit of that and some Google Web Toolkit. But but in two thousand and thirteen, we were starting a new project and we were looking at you know doing the Basic questions about which framework should be used, and the the options were really, I guess, Angular, Backbone, Ember, mm-hmm. and uh, we settled with Angular with that one. I think it was mostly because it was really the most popular one at that point. There was a lot of lot of hype, so it felt like a kind of safe thing to do. So, so I can't say it was really after a lot of technical, you know, consideration. But that's what we we did then, and it turned out to be a pretty good choice because, well, here I am now.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So were there particular things that made you want to learn Angular or was it just the popularity and stability of the
1: system? Well, there were some things like the data binding was, was a new concept for me back then after having used Backbone and having spent a lot of time figuring out how to basically wire things together so you could get your model changes shown in, in the views and making all of that work uh, you know, in a clean way. That was kind of a problem that the previous uh, previous frameworks that I'd used hadn't solved. And that was kind of what interest, interested me most. But the rest of it was really just that everyone kept saying that you need to try this, and this is really cool.
0: Yeah, I remember when uh, Ember came out, and the the story with Ember, and the reason that I didn't go with it, you know, Versus Angular was what you're kind of describing <coughs> with the the data binding and some of the other powerful features that it had. Um, Ember's powerful feature was just uh, managing data and keeping it all sort of in sync. And right uh, that that was not the problem that I needed solved in the immediate term. And so when I, when I was exposed to Angular, that's that's where I went. Mm-hmm. Um, which is funny because the guys that built Ember are actually. Um, Yehuda Katz was on the Rails core team and modeled a lot of stuff after Rails, so it was very familiar, but...
1: Right, right. Yeah, and and it really shows they they kind of have a lot of the same philosophy as, as Rails uh-huh. Uh-huh. around the the the, uh, the convention over configuration. And and really early on, they even had those really good CLI tools, which are only now coming into Angular, right? They've been a member since the very beginning. Yep.
0: But that said, I mean, you know, I could definitely see the sets of problems that... You're, you know, you're going to want to plug Ember in instead, but yeah, it's right. Yeah, it's it's kind of an interesting thing. I also want to just point out that there are some parallels between your story and mine, just from the sense of when I got in, I I got into Rails, and then mm-hmm. I was using Backbone and tried some of these other systems, and eventually got hooked on
1: Angular. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah, there was a lot of interesting things that happened with with front end in the early days of Rails, even before Backbone when we started doing this. Interesting, you know, JavaScript live updates of the page with these, were they RJS templates and things like that, which turned out to be a lot of a lot of work to maintain. But yep. back then, it was it felt like magic because those were things that you really hadn't been able to do before. Make things move on the page and update right on the page. That so was really a interesting and and fascinating time. Yeah.
0: So the third question is. Um, since you've gotten into Angular, what kinds of things have you contributed to the community or what kinds of things have you done that people should know about?
1: Mm-hmm. So my contributions with Angular and JavaScript in general are mostly around writing. Um, I am not a huge open source maintainer or, or contributor. I, I have like minor things I've contributed to both of the Angulars, but it's mostly around writing. And the biggest project there. Uh, was this book that I wrote and self-published called Build Your Own AngularJS, uh, which uh, um, is a relatively popular book, more popular than I expected it to be, and and seems to be well-liked by the people who who actually read it. And so that book was all about uh, learning the Angular framework by building your own version of it. And it takes this very methodical uh, way way of doing it, with, where you do it with test driven development. By for every feature you add, you write a failing unit test, and then you implement that that feature into the framework. And then, as time goes by, as you go deeper into the book, you amass your own kind of version of this core Angular framework. But more importantly, you you build up a mental model of how Angular works uh, with that process and uh that book was was a huge project i started it in early 2014 and i only really finished the book this year and it it became this thousand page monolith which which uh, i don't think that many people have actually finished but but those who have i think are are real angular experts by now uh so that that that's kind of the biggest writing project and on top of that that i've done A bunch of blog articles on on my blog about javascript and angular and the ones that have kind of found the biggest audience are are, well one is that one was that uh, one that i wrote in 2014 called um how i've improved my angular apps by banning ng controller which which was about this whole idea of um starting to put your ui code into these Components that were built with directives back then instead of using uh, scope inheritance and, and, and the kind of raw scope stuff and controllers. And that was something that was really in the air back then, but I kind of managed to write a post about it at the right time, which kind of captured the zeitgeist. And, and of course, that's something everyone does right now uh, by default, but it really wasn't the way things were done before uh, that time.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting, because that's exactly the direction that Angular 2 took.
1: Exactly, yeah. Yeah, that, that's where we are now. And okay. Angular 1 also has these, these APIs for that style of development now, and that's what's kind of really the, the encouraged way of doing Angular 1 as well. But it wasn't there at first.
0: Okay. I want to dig into yeah. your book a little bit. So what, mm-hmm. what possesses somebody to say, oh, I'm going to write a book, build your own Angular. How did you get there?
1: So so it started... Well, it was at the same time when um, I was kind of learning Angular myself, and I had real trouble kind of understanding how it worked. Angular 1 was a framework that sort of clearly wasn't originally designed to do all the things it, it's doing right now. It's kind of mm-hmm. built up over the years, and the abstractions there are, are quite leaky, and there's a lot of API... Uh, surface area there. So it's kind of hard to figure out things like how directive compilation works, or how transclusion works, or how many of the features work, so I, I just felt that it's, it's you know, a good um, strategy to actually dig into the code and see what it's doing, that, because then you really understand it. So I, I wrote an article about that, about the change detection, and that kind of was received so well that I thought maybe I, I should kind of write more about this. And that was at the same time when I had just turned an independent consultant from from, a, from an employment. And uh, I was kind of toying with this idea of having some sort of uh, passive income as well you know, on top of the consulting. So that's where I booked, a book project might help. And connecting those together just then became that book. And I, I published it pretty much right away with the first chapter. So as kind of a beta book that people could kind of start purchasing and getting updates uh, as and as uh, I I was able to kind of write more chapters into it and that kind of became the model most of the people who actually bought the book bought it way before it was finished and they got these updates basically a subscription model but but yeah it worked out I learned a lot of angular I sort of became an expert in angular and then also uh, made some money with it
0: Nice. So, what was your what was your process for writing the book? You know, for coming up with the code examples and then sitting down mm-hmm. and explaining to people how it all worked. Uh, that seems like a lot of work
1: as well. It, it was a lot of work. So, so I kind of had these rough chapter ideas of the, on this chapter I'm going to you know add transclusion or something like that. And then when I started working on that chapter, the first. Um, few days or or sometimes weeks were really just about understanding the original Angular code around that feature by looking at the actual source code and the unit tests that they have and the documentation and just in general how that API works. And then once I've understood that, then it was a process of okay, what's the kind of sequence of unit tests that allows you to add this feature incrementally so so that I could kind of Introduce it in the book in a way that the reader can sort of add one unit test and then make that pass and kind of follow the, this TDD pattern along the way. So it was also about you know trying to you know, sequence the addition of the feature in a way that makes sense, which is not necessarily the same that it was that was used by the original implementers of that that uh, that uh, feature. But but yeah, it was this process of understanding the feature, then figuring out the sequence, then coming up with the actual tests and the code and then writing the narrative around that for the book. That, that's kind of what I repeated for every chapter.
0: How long did it take you to finish it?
1: It took... Well, I started in January 2014, and I, I think that it came out of beta May this year, so that was more than two years. Oh, wow. Um, so it was a lot of time. didn't. I didn't... Sp- I didn't sp- Get to spend as much time at some periods that I should have during that time. But I, I still, yeah, it, it was I don't even want to think how many hours I spent on that. <laughs> but uh but it was a lot. It was a lot. It, it was a lot bigger project than I expected it to be. Right.
0: That's really, really interesting. So uh one other thing I want to talk about briefly is uh your talk at NGConf this year. Uh with <laughs> the music yeah. app. That was really fun. And I'm I'm kind of interested. I know we talked about this on the episode of Adventures in Angular, but um mm. yeah, I mean it, it seems like such a frivolous thing, and everybody gets so focused on doing something that has like big value to the world or whatever. Mm-hmm. So so why build this little toy?
1: Sure. So this I guess there are many reasons. Uh one of them was that this is just something that interests me a lot. Basically, doing music and especially this idea of making autonomous systems that make music automatically. This is kind of idea that comes from experimental music that's used a lot by by some composers and things like that. Which kind of is very interesting interesting to me as a programmer who is not a musician who is it seems like i'm not going to ever kind of pro- properly learn to play any instrument because i just can't bring myself to to kind of <laughs> that practice so so a way for me to do music would then be to you my existing skills which is you know programming and especially web development so that's kind of where i come from but there is also this very utilitarian purpose of it which is you can do musical applications in order to learn the technology that you're using so so, with that NGConf talk and then with the NG Europe talk I did six months later, I basically used these musical apps as a way to explain RxJS and reactive architectures, because it really gives your brain an interesting way to 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 kind of uh, understand what's going on in the app when you can actually hear these events that are taking place. Uh, in those observables or or whatever, it's kind of it's it's a very visceral way of, of learning an architecture. So it helps a lot with that as well. Even if you're not sort of interested in the music making itself, that's another one. And well, the reason I really went to NGConf was I I wanted to go, but I knew that if I submitted and was accepted, I would have to spend pretty much all of my spring to prepare that talk because it's a really big opportunity and a large conference. So I wanted to um, pick a topic that if I got get accepted, I really wanted to spend that time on and I probably wouldn't get, a- get accepted though, but they did accept me. So, so that's how I ended up there. <laughs> nice. I didn't really expect that to happen, but I'm really glad it did because that sort of then, uh, led to many other things that I've been doing in the same area since then. Very cool.
0: I, I also want to ask just because I know some people, especially people who are new and trying to prove that they can. Uh, provide value. How how important is that sense of play in programming? Because it felt like you were not just doing it because oh well, I wanted to learn how to make music and I wanted to learn these specific things. It it was also
1: because it was fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's also because it's fun and play. You know, itself, it's it's just something that's built into us—the drive to play. We we see it when we look at children, and but often when we come into adulthood, we sort of. Don't find ways to give us the permission to play as much as we used to. Maybe with computer games it's it's different, but but many other things we sort of always feel bad we're not doing something productive. but it's it's a really important thing to do. Um, and uh, and but again, it has this other side, which is more practical, which is that you do learn a lot of stuff while playing, which is what I just talked about with with the reactive stuff. and that's kind of. Also, I think the underlying reason why children do play, they, they don't think of it that like, like that, but when they play, they are learning ways to, you know, deal with the world and to behave with other people and all, all kinds of things. And that's where play kind of works kind of as a way, as a method we use to learn stuff. And that's a method we can apply also when we learn technical things. Yeah, that makes sense.
0: So the, the final question before we do picks is,
1: um, what are you working on now? yeah so I'm well for work I'm working on this react project with a customer but but apart from that the kind of more interesting stuff is, is really this musical thing these musical things that I've been doing throughout the year really. so I've done a bunch of different web apps around music and visualizing music and producing sounds with the web audio so there's a number of articles I've written some some talks and 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 also through that i've 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 learned a lot about making SVG and canvas graphics using, using JavaScript and also Angular, which is something I just talked about at, at NGBE and also, also published an article about. But um, yeah, yeah, it's the, the, really the thing that interests me right now is this whole historical thread of generative music and how I might be able to kind of do those things in the browser using everyday technologies. Yeah, that makes sense. <clears throat>
0: You mentioned that you're working on a React project right now, and at React mm-hmm. Remote Conf, we had a talk on React Music. Have you played it with that at
1: all? Oh, the, the Ken Wheeler project with the. Uh, yeah. I haven't played with it. I I do know about it, and it, it seems really cool. It's, it's kind of another example of where you apply a technology such as React and React components to something that it really wasn't designed for to do something yeah. fun, essentially, to play with it during which you learn a lot about how components work in React and how how music works. So that's a great example of the same kind of idea, but but I haven't really played with that so much. But, but what's really also interesting about that is that when you combine that with the hot-loading stuff in, in React, where you can make changes to components and have them applied immediately, you can es- essentially uh, do live music performance with that as well, which is really not what those tools are meant to do, but. Uh-huh but when you do that, that's how it comes out. So you can yeah, I just believe, play samples.
0: I think there was actually a part of that to his talk, so it was kind of fun to watch. Right.
1: Um, yeah, it's a really fun project.
0: So yeah, so you mentioned that you're a consultant, so if somebody's listening to this and saying, I need to hire Taro, who how, how do they find you?
1: Um, they can find me by, by going to my website, taropi.info, and there's an email address I think right at the footer uh, of that website, if if they want to send me an email or they can tweet. I'm on Twitter all day, every day, basically.
0: All right. Hey, everybody, this is Charles Maxwood. I just wanted to talk to you really briefly about JS Remote Comp. Uh, We just picked speakers. Things are looking really good, and uh, we're really excited to cover a broad range of topics for JavaScript developers. So if you're looking to learn things about Node.js, about becoming a better developer, about deployment, about mobile development, and much more, and much more about JavaScript, then come check us out, jsremoteconf.com. Uh, you can also find it by going to devchat.tv conferences, and then picking the conference you want. We have last year's recordings there. We have this year's uh, conference coming up, so make sure you get your ticket, and we'll see you there. Well, let's go ahead and jump into the picks. Um, you've been on the show a couple times, so you know what picks are. Are there some things you want to <laughs> shout out about that you've enjoyed? Last little
1: while. Uh, sure, yeah, sure. There's actually a couple of books that are related to each other that I would like to mention because they sort of relate to something I've been st- 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 I've started to do very recently. So, so these books are um, both from from Manning, and the first of them is called uh, Functional Programming in JavaScript, and the second one is called uh, Functional and Reactive Domain Modeling. So, the first one kind of says. Does what it says, which is kind of introduces functional programming concepts for JavaScript language, from basic things like functions and immutable data to, to more sophisticated things like, like uh, functors and monads and all kinds of things. And the second one, functional and reactive domain modeling, is is about uh, this whole idea of domain driven design, which is a way of uh, designing domain models that's really strong in in the object oriented community, and bringing that over to functional programming. And that book is in Scala, but the ideas in it apply to to many languages, I think. And the reason I picked these two is I think that they're a really good combination for maybe starting to do functional domain models in JavaScript when you kind of take those techniques from both those books. And especially when you then apply these to things like TypeScript and RxJS, I think with this mix, there's a really good kind of way to start doing really rich and really sophisticated domain models in, in, for example, Angular applications, which is something that's really always been very underrepresented in Angular discourse, because you know, the Angular framework doesn't give you any tools for doing domain modeling, so right. that means most people don't just end up doing none of that, and there aren't any domain models in many Angular apps, but many Angular apps could really benefit from that. And I think here's a mixture of books and technologies that, that help uh, actually, applying this thing to the front end, things like domain driven design in a way that has also very chimed really well with what's going on in JavaScript right now in general, which is all, which is discussions about immutability and functional programming and and reactive data flows. So that's really an interesting combination to me and And I've started reading those books right now and and I'm trying to get as many people to read them with me so we can have a discussion about this.
0: Cool. Uh, my picks are much less technical. Um, so on Saturday, my wife and I went and saw Rogue One, which is the new Star Wars movie, and it was pretty good. I really enjoyed it. Uh, had a good time. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm going to pick that. Um, I also picked this on Adventures in Angular this week, but uh, there is an article on the internet that talks about how much it would cost to power the Death Star. And so um, it talks about, yeah, how much it costs to do laundry for all those people and feed all those people, and then You know, of course, how much it costs to power up the weapon and how much it costs to jump to hyperspace and things like that. Um, And yeah, it was like six octillion pounds because it's British pounds. But anyway, I don't know how many dollars that is, but it sounds like a lot. So um, it was pretty interesting and I I really enjoyed uh, that aspect. And then um, the other pick I have is um, in about two weeks, I'm going to be at CES 2017. Uh, CES used to stand for Consumer Electronic Show until they said it doesn't anymore. Um, But anyway, so it's all of the newest and neatest uh, gadgets and gizmos. Um, I've probably got about a dozen emails from VR companies in my inbox saying, come see our stuff. Um, And then there are a whole bunch of health and other um, systems out there, uh, home automation systems or smart home systems. And uh, I'm really looking forward to digging into those, seeing what uh, kind of makes them work, and finding ways that we as programmers can enhance the capabilities there and see what they can do. So um, I'm going to pick that, and uh, yeah, I'm going to enjoy a couple of days in Las Vegas. Um, and I guess, I guess that's it. Um, are there any other good places for people to see what you're working on, Taro? Before we wrap up,
1: uh, not really. Everything I, I do, I, I share on Twitter, so that's really the place where. Or anyone who wants to talk to me can find me
0: all right well thank you so much for coming and talking to us thanks for having me